We are in Titus chapter 2 this evening, Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 11 through 15. But before I begin, I just want to say thank you to the worship team that just day in and day out, you know, week in and week out, come up here, uh, lead our spirits into a state of worship. And then I also want to highlight too, if you've never paid attention, I don't want to embarrass them, but over here we've got Nathan, Miranda, and Kaylee, and they, she's been signing. We had Charity as well and some other individuals uh, for our, our ministry over there with the deaf. And it's just such a blessing to have them volunteer their time and their energy and their efforts to be able to provide this service. So I am just so thankful for you and what you guys do. So thank you very much. We love you guys. Uh, so Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 11 through 15. I'll be reading. It'll be on the screen here. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles. Titus 2, 11 through 15, as we wrap up the second chapter here of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The sermon that I titled this for this evening is How to Leave the Past Where It Belongs. I think so often for us, it is very difficult for us to move past a point in time, and it may be several points in time, several different hurts, several different situations in which you have failed, or a previous lifestyle that you had lived prior to coming to know Christ, and that's still coming out to haunt you. Sometimes the past, I like to view it as a shadow. It follows me, and I think that it has to stay attached to me, and I just think, well, this is just how I have to deal with this. This is my burden to bear. I can never really move past my transgressions I have committed previously, actions I've done previously, sins I've committed previously, and in the Christian life, I feel like this is a very significant way we are hindered in growing in our salvation and growing in our knowledge of Christ. And often we feel as Christians, we, we hit the ceiling of like, I, I, I have been growing, I've been growing, things are going well, I, I, I'm really pursuing after Christ, I, I've been freed from temptations and sins, and then all of a sudden, you fall back into something again. And you fall back into that and you beat yourself up and you're like, my word, I, I just plowed through six months of being free from this addiction or being free from this sin. And then now I find myself back in this place again. And I guess I, this is just my life. Uh, I'm not going to bother anymore. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm not going to work in my salvation anymore. I just figure this is as much of a Christian as I can be. And hopefully God will forgive me for this. And I feel like when we think this way, we hit this spiritual stagnation in which we will not continue to grow in our salvation. We will not continue to grow in our understanding of the amount of grace that God lavishly gives us. And we won't grow in our understanding about how a Christian is supposed to live with a future hope. Because I'm so focused looking back about ever this, this garbage trail following me that I feel like is attached to my hip that I'll never be free from, that it keeps pulling me from where God's trying to take me because I'm so worried about looking back. And this section in Titus, I believe, gives us some beautiful examples and some implications that we can draw out and apply into our life. Because let's look at verse 11. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This sentence right here is just, to me, the most edifying passage on how to just leave the past in the past. Or when you're sitting and you're combating yourself with doubt toward your salvation, doubt toward your spiritual growth, doubt to am I really living a life for Christ and will Christ ever bring me back in? Will the church ever bring me back in? Will my friendship group bring me back in? Will my discipleship group bring me back in? Look at what the verse says. For the grace of God. Where's this grace coming from? It's coming from God. It's not coming from you. You have done nothing to concoct this grace. There's no magic potion that you've put together in order to receive this grace. The grace that we have initially received through salvation was a free gift of grace. And if the free gift of grace that we have received upon salvation, is that not enough grace to allow us to maintain us throughout our lives in our spiritual walk? Because it looks here, the grace of God has what? It has appeared. Now the word appeared here literally means to show or to become clearly known. So if you're wondering, am I in Christ? Am I still walking with Christ despite I I keep falling into these sins and I'm working through it and I'm, I'm seeing victory in certain ways? Can I know that the grace of God is real in my life? Yes, you can, because as the text says here, the grace of God has appeared. It has become clearly known. You as a believer, you can clearly know that you're in Christ. And it's not just for some. It's not just for some of the Christians within the faith. It's not just for the super holy elite Christians in the faith. No, no, no. It has become clearly known for all people who are in Christ. This is a very clear understanding that salvation, when you are truly in Christ, the understanding of the grace that you have received to receive salvation in the first place is clearly known. It has been made known and it has appeared to you. Now, when you look at the word grace, this word defined, and this is kind of my concoction through the Greek and also some other texts, Grace means the merciful kindness by which God, using his holy influence on souls, turns them to Christ. Grace is gifted to us from God, which leads us into salvation, and it doesn't stop there. Once you're in Christ, once you've received salvation, it's not that God kind of throttles back on the grace, and it's like, all right, you've got enough, Ethan, keep going. Good luck. I'll see you at the end of the finish line. If you remember when we were studying in Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he, referring to Jesus, who began a good work in you, namely salvation, will see it what? To completion. How? In Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus has given us grace. We did not earn this grace. We could not do anything to receive this grace other than humbly go on our knees and say, God, I believe in you. I confess my sins to you. I trust in you. And we receive this grace, and the grace that we receive is enough to sustain us. And it's not like it's a pot that you're drawing out of, you're drawing out of, and eventually you have to hit the refill button for that grace to get back up again so you can continue on living. But what happens, though, is in our minds, we we think because we are so transactional in every aspect of our life that we begin to be transactional with Christ, We begin to be transactional in our salvation. Well, if I do this, God's love is going to diminish. Or if I don't do this, then I'm not in right standing with God. And what we see here is that we have received. We have not just received, but we have inherited this gift. And it brings us from one place 
originally out of sin into light, and then it continues to keep us in the light. And this grace maintains us through our walk. This grace maintains us through difficult situations. This grace maintains us when we doubt our salvation. This grace maintains us when we find ourselves in horrific situations in which we feel like we've just been treading water and we're barely getting enough breath to be able to maintain living a life worthy of Christ. And so we just think, well, it's just easier if I give up, just keep going back into my sin, and you know, I'll just have to wait till judgment day to see where I stand. And that's exactly what the devil wants. The devil wants you to doubt the grace that you've received. The devil wants you to doubt your salvation. And the devil wants you to believe that you have somehow contributed something to salvation. And the devil wants you to continue to think that you've contributed something to salvation. And now if you don't continually contribute to your salvation, somehow the grace of God of salvation is going to leave you and you're going to be lost and you're not going to have the salvation in Christ anymore. And what's interesting is if verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, well, how did this grace appear? Well, we know it appeared in Christ, but also this grace has become the obvious in the transformation from who we once were into who we are now, who we were prior to Christ and who we are now. When I believed I was a Christian all the way up until the age of 18, I never really noticed any significant change in my pursuit of holiness. I did the right things, I said the right things, I followed the right actions, but ultimately though, I was void. I remember always thinking, hearing people saying, oh, that person's on fire for God, or that person's doing this, or that person's for that. I'm like, well, I want to do that. And so I thought if I pursued emotionally enough, or if I worked as hard as I could, I could be in this elevated status where people in the church would say, that young man's on fire for God. And I probably could have if I tried hard enough, but does that mean my trying hard and my perception or others' perception of me, does that mean that there has actually been an inward transformation? It does not. And if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 through 18, I think this gives us a beautiful view of how God brought us out of who we were prior to Christ. He brings us into a new relationship with him, and then he's continuing to work in us. He continues to pour his grace in us. It is an unfillable pot that can never fully be filled because it is always filled. It is always overflowing. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. This is talking about those prior to Christ's uh, resurrection, these individuals were following the Old Testament Judaism, uh, those practices, the Old Testament, the law, and that they had to do all of these things to earn salvation, to be able to confess their sins. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. When you turn to the Lord, that veil is removed, right? That sin is removed. This is an alliteration with the Old Testament believers in the New Testament era as Paul's addressing this, but for us in modern era, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is removed, meaning that you now saw the sin clearly in your life. And prior to Christ, we all saw the sin. We felt a little bad about it, but then we continued on as if nothing really ever changed. But now that you're in Christ, when you do sin, you can't just continue on. It will. It is like heaping a burden on you that continues to be heaped on you. Then it continues like a little a stabbing in the side of like, this is an issue. You have yet to confess this. That veil is removed, and now our heart has been softened to this. Now, continuing on. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, 
and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Listen to this. Guys, if you've got your Bibles, underline this. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Well, how? For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So a few things in this passage. Number one, this gives us a beautiful illustration on the deity of Christ. This gives us a beautiful illustration into understanding the Trinity, and that the Spirit, the Lord, and God, they are three in one. And not only that, this also shows us that we possess the Spirit, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This means that God continually works in us even after salvation. It's not a one and done, check in the box, continue on, and just have good fun, good luck, figure it out. The Spirit is ministering with you. The Spirit is ministering to you. This is helping us move from one way of thinking, who we were and how we thought prior to Christ, and moving us into the next. Guys, we are no longer bound by who we once were. That life that I lived up until the age of 18, until God convicted me and truly showed me that I was not in Christ, and when I finally confessed and literally gave my life over to Christ, said, God, I am sick of living my life for myself. I want to live it for you. My mind was opened, and I now understood all of these past sins God has forgiven, and he doesn't look at them anymore. God doesn't revisit them and bring them back to you and say, hey, Ethan, don't you remember back in 2005 when this happened? He doesn't do that. If we confess our sins, what does the scripture say? He is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to how cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If God doesn't bring up my past and continually confronts me with this and say, Ethan, you still got to atone for this. You still mess this up. You got to answer for this. God doesn't do that. But who does do that? We do that to ourselves. Why? Why do we do this to ourselves? Why are we torturing ourselves? If God's grace is enough for us, he has made this clear to us. You know who you were prior to Christ and who you are after Christ. I mean, if you truly are a regenerate believer, there's no way you don't see this transformation. And I remember thinking as a kid, well, I hear these testimonies of these guys incredibly addicted to drugs, or they're running with the drug cartel and God radically saved them. So yeah, you can clearly see who they were prior to Christ and who they are after Christ. But the way in which you think, your desires, your intentions, those change when you have Christ living inside of you. When you are a truly a regenerate believer who has died to self and is now made alive in Christ, you see a stark contrast, a difference between who you were in the dark and who you are now in the light because your sin is now brought to the forefront as you are currently doing it. But when we confess, that sin is gone. You confess that sin. It's left you. Don't revisit that sin. Don't go back and say, all right, God, I'm following you. But... I remember when this happened to me, God, are you sure you're forgiving me from this too? When Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, it wasn't just for the sins currently, it was for the past, present, and yet to happen sins. Now, when I'm saying your past, I sometimes think, myself included, as I'm giving you these illustrations, I'm talking years ago. No, 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 I may be talking from a few hours ago. We should not make a habit of practicing sin, but sadly, we are still in battle with our flesh. And we have a choice as we're battling our flesh. Do I give into my flesh or do I lean into Christ? And do I lean into the promptings of the Holy Spirit? And sometimes, I hate to say it, myself included, I sometimes lean into the flesh and I do something and I realize I shouldn't have done that. Immediately, my response should be, I confess this. I confess it to God. If I've sinned against another brother or sister in Christ, I confess it to them and then I move on. Now, I don't move on thinking, all right, well, that's it. 
I should still learn from this sin and realize, okay, how did this happen? How did I find myself in this situation? How did I ruin potentially this relationship with my brother or sister in Christ? And I need to learn from that and to track how did I end up in that situation and take preventative measures to control my body, to control myself, to control my thinking, to be cautious that I don't end up back into that same scenario. Because so often I think, you know, we, we tend to play, you know, confession roulette at times. You know, you put your sins in, in the barrel and you spin, you're like, all right, I'm going to confess that one. What about those? No, not yet. I'm not ready for those yet. And so you're holding on to other sins and you confess the ones you're like, well, that's glaringly obvious, so I'm going to confess that one. But these ones, I'm not sure if they're really a sin. If you're even questioning it, if it's a sin, you need to confess this. I highly suggest you become a confessional Christian. At any point in time that you feel you are about to go into sin, or you know that you have already potentially committed a sin, or you know you actively committed that sin, you need to get in the spiritual discipline of confession. I cannot stress this enough. This is something that I've been trying to teach my children when I pray them to bed at night, and I pray to them, and it's a simple prayer. I say, Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Any sins that I knowingly did do that I haven't confessed to you, any sins that I'm not sure that I did that I have sinned, I ask you to remove these sins from me and I confess my sins to you and I thank you for forgiving me my sins. And I practice and I model this to my children and I have my children repeat. I say, hey, son, daughter, confess your sins. And sometimes like, well, I don't know what I did. I understand. You probably don't. Did you think, do you think you sinned today? I'm sure I did. Yes, I know you did. I was a recipient of some of those sins. I need you to just confess and just say, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. And I, I have them say it. And my youngest, she, she doesn't like to pray out loud all the time. And I said, can you say it in your head? And she goes, yeah. I said it in my head. I said, okay. And then this is what I love about confession. And this is why in, in instances and ways, liturgies are beautiful because as you confess your sin, you can have someone affirm, if you have confessed your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. You are forgiven. You need to understand that you are forgiven. Sin no more. Now, me saying that to my children does not mean that I have forgiven them their sins. I am not saying that in the slightest bit. What I am saying is, I am affirming to my children that God has heard their confession and that they need not be bound by that sin that they did. They can move on and live a better life, live a life focused on Christ. So when we understand that God has moved us, we have the Spirit, He's moved us from death to life, and now He continually transforms us into His image and after His likeness. That is what pursuing holiness is. That is why Paul was consistently stressing to Titus, Timothy, and all of his epistles, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are trying to pursue after Christ to be more like Christ. Now, we have to live in a way, though, that demonstrates the internal transformation in an external way. Look at verse 12. How do we do this? How do we move from one degree to another? And what happens as we are demonstrating the inward transformation externally? Verse 12 gives us this. By training us, what? To renounce, what are we renouncing? Ungodliness. I mean, that's a huge category. Anything that you can think of that is ungodly or that is a sin, throw that under that. Ungodliness. And what else? Worldly passions. And what should we do? And to live a, to live a self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So this verse right here, this, this one verse gives us three ways 
that we can move forward and forget and to die to our past. And if this is something that is continually haunting you, that is like this dark rain cloud over top of your head, well, Ethan, there's no way. I know that God gave me forgiveness and I know that God gave me, but I'm still wrestling with this. I don't know if God has truly pulled me out of this, this addiction that has continued on into my life or this, this issue that I keep wrestling with in my demeanor. Look at what this verse does. It gives us three ways. One, it trains us. The Word of God trains us. The Spirit trains us. Two, it helps us to say no to the past. I have to actively, it's a mindset shift. I have to cognitively understand that this is no longer held over me. I have to immediately remind myself of the truths of God and say, no, this past is not who I am. That is not who I am any longer. I may have fallen back into the sin, but that is not going to happen again. I am renewed. I have confessed this. I need to move on. And then number three, it teaches us and it helps us to live a self-controlled life. Now, there's an important distinction I want us to draw out of this in verse 12. Training us. Well, what trains us? This ties back to verse 11. The grace of God trains us. The grace of God ministers to us through the Holy Spirit. Well, how does it train us? It trains us to say no to the past and renouncing ways in which we once lived an ungodly life in a life that is committed and dedicated to pursuing worldly passions. Now, the interesting thing is once we have received the grace of God, our minds are renewed. Our minds are open to understand the scriptures. The Spirit teaches us these things. The Spirit ministers these things to us. And we forget about the past and we see, okay, I need to be living a life that is not of ungodliness, that is not not self-controlled. We have to be pursuing holiness and not worldly passions. And so often we go through our lives and we find ourselves in these places of temptation. We fail, we sin, we mess up, we do things that we ought not to do. And what typically happens is our mind makes this shift in our head of like, well, I've confessed this, but I can't believe this happened again. I was talking to someone in our group on Sunday and he was like, man, I'm in a really good place right now. God is really working in me. God has been growing me. I've been in the Bible. I have seen the fruits of the Spirit, my interactions with other individuals. And I said, dude, I am so proud and happy for you, but I want to warn you. When you find that you're doing well and God's working in your life and you're growing in your understanding and you are living a holy life, that fall from holiness back into a life of sin is a great, great chasm that potentially can happen. And the problem is, is often when that happens, you hit that bottom place again. You, you got pulled back into alcohol. You got pulled back into pornography. You got pulled back into sexual temptation. You got pulled back into whatever your vice is. And you're like, oh my word, I was living a holy life for eight months. And now that one act, I'm back where I was before. And that is what the devil wants. The devil wants to continually heap this guilt on you. And continually heap this guilt on you where you're thinking, I've got to hold all this up myself. I've got to maintain this structure of Christian living myself. And I don't know how much more I can take. I'm just going to let it consume me. That's it. I can't do anything else. And so instead of you just realizing the grace that God has given to me is enough. Yes, I screwed up. I should not have done that. I need to confess that to Christ and move on and not look back again. Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, imagine when you sin, you immediately recognize, you immediately confess that, you purge that from you, and you say to God, God, help me to not do this again. You can't do this on your own. 
I'll say that right now. Doing this alone is almost an impossibility. That is why you need a community of fellow believers to do this with you. But sadly, what happens with this is we get fear of what that could potentially mean. We get scared of perception of others about ourselves. But what we must understand is that for me to move past my sin, for me to move forward in progression in my spiritual walk, I need to understand that God does not condemn you when you sin. Should we sin? No. Should we make a habit of practicing sin? No. Is it bad that we sin? Yes. Should we confess our sin? Yes. But Romans 8.1 gives us a beautiful demonstration that God does not want you to sit there in self-loathing. God does not want you to sit there in your muck and mire thinking, I just failed after eight months of success or a year or two years or whatever. Romans 8.1, you need to own this verse, incorporate this in your daily confessional, incorporate this in your daily mantra of pursuing after holiness. Romans 8.1. There is therefore, actually, if you guys say this with me, please, all out loud. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Look at this. When we sin and we confess, God does not condemn us. We're in Christ. He is in us. The spirit lives in us. We have been renewed. So stop condemning yourself. God has freed you. God has freed you from that sin. God has freed you from this condemnation. The law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That sin that you fall back into, confess it. God is not condemning you and saying, Ethan, as I'm continuing on this walk, no, don't you remember what you did there? God, I confess it. Not good enough. Not good enough. You need to keep doing that. And you keep confessing it. God, I, I've, already, I've already confessed this to you. Uh-uh, not enough, Ethan. It's not, God doesn't do that. Now, we do that with each other, do we not? Don't we continually remind each other of how you've been wronged? Or what it was always for me is, I sadly borrowed money from kids to get snacks at the concession stand at school. Hey, can I borrow 50 cents here? Can I borrow 50 cents there? And that kid always nags you, Ethan, you still owe me 50 cents for that airhead you bought. Ethan, you still owe me. Ethan, you still owe me. Ethan, you still owe me. So eventually, I had to raid my parents' penny jar to be able to pay this guy back. I'm like, fine, here's your 50 cents and pennies. Have fun with that guy. God doesn't do that with our sin, though. God doesn't continually remind you of that sin that you've done if you've confessed it. Now, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, yes, that will happen because God has given us the Spirit and if we have been sensitive to the Spirit and we've obeyed the promptings of the Spirit, when we sin, that sin will start to consume our mind. That guilt will be overwhelming until we confess it. And when I confess that sin, I need to remind myself of Romans 8.1. There is there therefore now no condemnation because I have confessed that sin, I've been freed from that sin, and now I move and continue my pursuit of holiness and I don't even bother looking back anymore. Guys, I'm telling you, this is how we have to live our lives in this culture. It is ridiculous the amount of junk we're completely bombarded with. I'm going to throw out a few statistics. Did you know that the average age of an individual exposed to pornography is 11 years old? 11. 93% of men are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. 62% of women are exposed to pornography at the age of 18. Consistent pornography addiction, they spend 11 to 12 hours a day looking at pornography. And when you look at the statistics... 68% of divorces come from an addiction to pornography. 
And what's even more troubling to me, 33% of professing Christians are addicted to pornography. Guys, that's just one sin. If you struggle with pornography, everyone in this room, me included, has to do a fight to not fall into that temptation. To not watch that show on HBO or Netflix or any other thing. It's so easy for that to just creep up, influence your mind, and then you start to think, you start to dwell, and then you act. And if you don't get a grip on these sexual immorality issues right now, what's going to happen when you get married? What's going to happen when your spouse finds out you've got a closet addiction? Now you may be thinking, Ethan, that's not my issue. Phenomenal. Protect yourself. Continue to protect yourself and come alongside those who are not as strong fighting it. That's just one. I could address alcohol and many others, and we'll do that in a little bit. But I want you to know, you confess your sin, you are no longer condemned. God has forgiven to you. When Christ died, he paid for all of your sin. All the sin that has happened, all the sin that will happen, and all the sin that is currently happening. Because as 1 John 1.9, and we've said this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So make a profession and a confession continually. I'm continually confessing my sins. This needs to be a daily rhythm for you of sin confession multiple times throughout the day, immediately after you sin. And I'm not saying I can sin and then I confess and I'm good to go and I I can keep doing it over and over and over again. No, Paul dresses that. That is not what I am saying. What I'm saying is you are fighting, you're clawing your way. The Holy Spirit is working in you. You are making success. God is growing you. You're pursuing after Christ. You're in your devos. You're in a discipleship group. You're in church. You've got a hungry passion. You're sharing the gospel with others. And all of a sudden you sin. Don't disqualify yourself now. Because that's what we do and that's what the devil wants. Well, I screwed up. I'm sinning. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to share the gospel anymore. I'm not going to be in a discipleship group anymore. I'm not going to read my Bible anymore because I messed up. No, no, no. Confess that. You're no longer condemned. Move on and do not make a habit of this. As James says this in James chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So how do we move forward from our past? How do we move forward after we have sinned? This is how we do it. We confess. We put aside the sinful actions and thoughts, and we humbly go back to the Word of God for continued training and holiness. This is what verse 12 was telling us. And then what do we do? Then we live out what we are being trained in for others. We are modeling this to others. And how long do we do this for? Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So basically what I'm saying is you continue this until God calls you home. You don't think that you hit this spiritual plateau and you're like, I'm good, I'm Roger that, I'm not going to have this issue anymore. No, no, no. The second you think you've got it all figured out is when you crash the hardest. The second when you think that you're untouchable because you have like erected all of these spiritual barrier walls and that sin can't hit you, that's exactly when the sin creeps in and it contempts and it contrives and it deceives you and you fall back into your past again. Stop looking at your past. This is tough work, but look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Look at this, guys. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So look at this verse real quick. Whatever a man sows, or a woman sows, don't worry, this is both, both genders included. Whatever a man or a woman sows, they will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, will reap corruption. And the one who sows from the Spirit will sow from the Spirit, reap eternal life. So if you're wondering why you keep falling into sin, continually, habitually, it's probably because you're not actually in the Word to begin with. You continually are sowing in the flesh, you're going to continually reap those sinful acts in the flesh. You, you meditate on God's word. You surround yourself with God's word. You intoxicate yourself in God's word. You are reaping in the spirit you are going to, or you sow in the spirit you are going to reap in the spirit. That is why you need to consume your mind with the things of Christ. That is why I, I, I love to listen to the audio Bible as I drive. When I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling angry, when I'm feeling depressed, when I feel like I'm maybe entering into temptation to think ill of other people or other things, I throw on the Bible. I may not be in the mood for reading, but I can guarantee I'm in the mood for listening. As you're driving your car, fill your things and your mind with the things of the Spirit. Listen to it. If you haven't listened, I've, I've pitched this before, on Spotify, look for streetlights. Look for streetlights, and you can listen to so many different things. It's done with music. It's very well done. And you are meditating on God's Word day and night. As you meditate on God's word, you are sowing in the spirit, you are going to reap from the spirit, and this is going to help you grow. We must not grow weary in doing good. Yes, this is a tough fight that we have to pursue after. This is a tough fight of holiness that we have to move forward through. But we must live knowing that our future hope is in Christ. And the past will begin to fade away. As you protect your mind and you are investing in the future in the spirit, the past will slowly start to fade away and will become bleak and you can't even remember, nor do you want to remember. We have to be living continually in the presence of Christ. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God gave himself his, through his son Jesus to redeem us from this lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You, if you call Christ your Lord and Savior, he owns you. And not just own you in like a negative light, I'm talking he owns you in a good protection light. You are his. He is purifying you. He's redeemed you from all lawlessness. And he's purifying you for his own possession, and he wants individuals that are zealous for good works. People who are looking in the scriptures for truth, people who are pursuing after holiness. That is what this promise is for us. When we have been redeemed by Christ, he has set us free from the previous way of thinking. He has set us free from the previous way of living and acting. He has purified himself for us. If we look back at Titus chapter 1, verse 15 through 16, I think this gives us a beautiful illustration of what this looks like. To the pure, all things are pure. This is talking about an individual who is pure inside, the way in which they live outside is also overflowing of the purity of their heart. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
If you are in Christ, you don't have to worry about asking yourself, am I pure or am I defiled? Because Christ has made what is defiled in you pure. Not you. Christ has already done that. So you are pure in the inside. Now the problem is, is how does this look on the external, how this plays out in my life? I may be pure on the inside, but the way in which I'm living, I keep falling back into sin here and here and here. What are you also ingesting into yourself to help aid you in your pursuit of purity, in your pursuit of holiness? If you're consuming what the world tells you to consume, then of course the things that are going to be coming out is going to be defiled. But if I'm consuming things that are pure and I have purity inside me, that is the perfect equilibrium on how to live a holy, Christ-centered life. The issue that I think really comes down that I've seen in my own life is, do I truly believe in the sufficiency of Christ in the work that he did on the cross? Was it truly enough? Is God sovereign over everything that has happened to me? And did the work that he do on the cross, is it and was it sufficient If it was, then my past needs to stay back there. If Christ has purified me, if Christ has forgiven me of all my sins, I have to allow those sins to remain in the past and to not revisit them. It's like the verse, a dog will return to his own vomit, right? Why do we continually return to our own sinful vomit? Why do we keep going back to the old ways thinking that this is somehow going to help me? A lot of times we're looking, God, give me your will. Help me. I want to know what choice to make. I want to know where to go. I want to know who to date. I want to know what job to take. And we're so consumed with all of these external, superficial, materialistic issues that we don't actually stop and think, God, what do you want me to do? And I want to do what you want me to do and not what I want to do. When I think that God is sovereign over my situation in every aspect of my life, meaning God is full in control, And I know that God is sufficient in my good days and in my bad days and that he has done enough work for me on the cross. I can live in a state of peace knowing that God is going to show me the direction that he wants me to go. And so often, I was talking to someone earlier today, the hardest thing for us as Christians is to wait. I I am the most impatient person I think you could probably ever meet. And that is what God is continually refining me on in which I have a very long commute that I take my kids to school day in and day out. Patience is not one of my virtues that God is definitely wrecking me with. When I go to the airport, I do everything possible to breeze through that line. That's why I have TSA pre-check. That's why I pack my bag in a very specific way so I can just breeze right through there and I laugh at all the peons who don't have TSA pre-check as I walk my way to the gate to wait for another six hours as those people who took their time getting through there and everything else, and I'm still waiting the same line. And then I'm sitting in the very back of the plane and when they beep the thing, everyone stands up as if we're all going somewhere and we're not. And I sit there in the back just wondering, of course I sit in the back. Why couldn't I have invested and gotten a nicer seat? Well, Ethan, it's more money. Okay. Patience is the hardest thing. And not just patience in the day-to-day, but the patience. And when you know that God wants you to go somewhere, God, knows, God wants you to go after this job, after this pursuit, after this location, after this house. And he's like, wait. Just wait. No. I do not want to wait now. It's those J.G. Wentworth commercials. It's my money and I want it now. I don't know if you've ever seen those. They drive me insane. 877-CASH-NOW. Yeah, someone else said it with me. How often do we want this, though, in the physical, materialistic sense? But also, don't we do this in the spiritual sense as well? 
God, I've been reading the Bible for a week. Grow me. Activate. There's this one video. I'm way off subject here. I don't know if you've ever seen this video. If not, I'll have to find it and share it with you. This woman's up on the stage and says, Holy Spirit, activate. Holy Spirit, activate. That is not how the Holy Spirit works. He does not work on command for me. I'm sorry. Thank God he doesn't because he would have given me things that I should have never possessed in the first place. But so often though in the spiritual life, don't we want things immediately and now and we're unwilling to invest and wait and allow God to give the growth? We want to manufacture the growth for ourselves and we want to expedite this for ourselves. If God is sufficient and if God is sovereign, if God is all-knowing, do you not think that he has a perfectly viable reason for why he's saying, hold up, son, wait. I want you here. Trust me. Do you trust me? Yeah, God, I do. But I've seen all of this. I want to just move past this. I know you kind of want me to go in this direction. Let's go. What are you waiting for? I'm still waiting. Let's go. God had me wait 10 years until I finally ended up in a full-time vocational ministry. God had me wait 20 years until he finally brought me my spouse. Granted, that was from birth until 20. I'm not that old. The hardest thing, too, in my marriage that I've realized is waiting nine months for the birth of my first child. This was the perfect example when God revealed to me, you're the most impatient person, Ethan, in the world. We were maybe six months pregnant. In my mind, I'm like, that doctor's wrong. That baby's coming any day now. I know he said November 21st. I can guarantee you, Diane, it's in August or September. I know it. He's wrong. Somehow, I'm a doctor, and somehow I can gauge when the baby's going to come. And I remember there were so many nights, I would just be standing over the crib looking at him like, this babe, I want this baby now. I don't want to wait anymore. And it, it literally drove me insane where I was pacing in the baby's room looking and waiting. When is this baby going to get here? And then trying to say, okay, Diane, eat the spicy food. Okay, Diane, we're going to go for a run. This baby's coming today. You can ask her. I did this. I was so impatient because I didn't want to wait when God wanted the baby to come. Praise God that he did not answer my prayer. Because that baby needed the nine months to come out as a healthy child. And I remember when Caden came out and we had him, I'm like, oh my word, where did all my free time go? I'm not sleeping. Diane, we just need sleep. Can't we just get more sleep? I don't have any free time. So I wanted to rush into being a father. I get my child finally after waiting nine months, which was the most arduous long wait ever. I'm telling you, when you guys get to be in that era, when you're about to have kids, Nine months is 17 years. It, it, you'll see when you get to that point. Years from now, when you're about to have a kid, you'll be like, Ethan was right. I know exactly what he's talking about. And as you get to that point, and your kid comes out, and it's like, okay, now what? Now I have this kid. Now what am I waiting in anticipation for? So often we are so driven by our own desires that we don't stop, check, wait, seek the Lord, and say, God, not my will, but your will. Not my timing, but your timing. And we have to trust that God's timing and God's will is sufficient for us and that God's grace that he gives to us is enough for us and that God is going to continually hone us in our craft. And when he is ready to use us, 
I need to know that I am ready and ready to hit that ground running. Because what I don't want to do, during those nine months I was waiting for Caden, I was buying diapers every month. I was buying wipes every month. I was buying all of this stuff to be prepped. So when that kid did come, I didn't have to go to any Costco, any Sam's Club to get anything. Granted, you learned there's a whole lot more things that you need to buy after a kid other than just diapers and wipes. But the thing was, though, I was preparing myself. I realized, okay, God's keeping me in this situation. What can I do as I'm in this time of waiting to ready myself for the next phase that God is moving me into? So for a lot of you, you're finishing up college. I want to land this job. Cool. What if that doesn't come for four years? What are you going to do until that time? Are you going to waste your time away and just sit here and stomp your feet and be pouty and say, well, gee whiz, I, I know eventually God will give it to me. I'm not going to do anything to better myself until God's ready to use me. Are you blooming where you're planted right now? Are you seeing the opportunities God has given you right now? And are you exhausting yourself to the end state to get ready for when God does activate you and God does move you to where he wants to go? You don't have to say, well, wait, I'm not ready. No, you're ready to go. Because that's the worst thing is especially, you see this at red lights. You pull up to a red light, you're like, all right, it needs to turn green. And the next thing you know, you're making fun of that dude who waited too long because the light turned green and you honk your horn and then he goes. The next stoplight, guess what? That's you. Like that jerk, he didn't even go and it turned green. The next thing you're on your phone, beep, beep. Oh, no, I'm that guy. <laughs> we always need to be ready. We always need to be honing in our craft of spiritual walking with Christ to get ready for where God and when God does move us to the next phase. Because if there's anything I've learned in my life, you hit these phases. It's like if you remember that contentment wave that we talked about several months ago, right? We've got our highs, we've got our lows, and then that contentment kind of just plows through all of that. When you can rest in the contentment that Christ gives you, when you're going through those highs and lows, you can recognize those highs and lows. And when God hits that stop button or God hits that pause button and you're waiting, you're in this holding pattern, right? Don't waste that time. Don't waste that time looking for the next thing that's to come and you're neglecting where God has placed you right now. You're neglecting how God is growing you where you are at right now. God, you are neglecting those individuals God has brought into your life to pour into them right now. Stop waiting for the yet to come and stop, start focusing on the right now but being prepared for the yet to come. When we can be prepared for the yet to come but blessed in this area and see this as a blessing of the area that I'm in right now, you are being a good steward of what God has given you and you will not be focusing on your past because you'll be so consumed with where you are right now and helping others and helping yourself and growing in their spiritual walk that when God's like, all right, release, you're out of the holding pattern, you're going where God wants you to go because you've been waiting for that and you've been preparing for that all this time. We have to look at the way in which our life has been pursuing after holiness. We have to focus on those times and speak these times into us. No, God has helped me from this. God has helped me with my contentment. God has helped me develop my patience. And not only that, but God has helped me conquer these sins. When you have been sin free of a specific sin or an addiction that you have, you have to celebrate that and you need to celebrate that in a community of believers. If you've been alcohol free, if alcoholism was your issue and you've been sober for the longer time than you've ever been, you need to celebrate that. We well, think it's only been a week. Praise God. You've been sober for a week. Phenomenal. Let's celebrate that week. Then let's celebrate those two weeks. Then let's celebrate for the next year. Let's celebrate for the next two years. Ethan, I, I have not had intercourse with anybody in six months. Amen. Let's make that double. Let's go another 12 months. Let's go till marriage. Amen. Let's continue to fight that good fight. Ethan, I, 
I've been free from pornography for two weeks. Amen. Let's keep this up. Let's celebrate our victory over sin. But what happens, though, as we get into this, we get scared. We have fear that as I'm hitting this upward, this upward motion, right? We hit this upward motion of, man, I'm doing well. God is growing me. I'm conquering my sin. God is helping me here. We get a fear of failure. I was reading a, uh, a psychology. I love psychology. I love psychology. And not only psychology, but I love academic research in psychology. And I was reading this article, and this was focusing on the fear of failure as it relates to entrepreneurs. As it relates to entrepreneurs who are starting to either grow their business or wishing to start their own business. And as I was reading this, I realized, holy smokes, this is no different than a Christian who is combating and dealing with sin and pursuing after holiness. Look at the first one. A fear of failure feelings. One, experiencing shame or embarrassment. You celebrate your conquering sin. You say, hey, Ethan, I've been free from alcohol for two weeks. Amen. But then what happens if tomorrow you accidentally fall back into that alcohol? Well, I can't show my face to Ethan anymore. Uh, I, I can't show my face to anybody anymore. I, I'm too scared to experience shame and embarrassment. Uh, so in order for me to not experience that shame and embarrassment, I'm just not going to tell anybody that I've been having victory in my life right now. The second one, you start to devalue your own self-estimate. What does this mean? You start to see yourself unworthy of the grace that God has given you. You start to see yourself, well, man, gee whiz. I mean, it's a, it's a matter of time before I fall back into this again. So heaven forbid I tell anybody this. Heaven forbid I do pursue after holiness because I just know I'm going to fall back into this. There's no way that God's going to help cleanse me of this sin. And so you're just too scared of that. Having an uncertain future. Ethan, I'm graduating college. I've got a bachelor's. I've got an MBA. I've been at this job for six years, but I don't feel like this is where God wants me anymore. I don't know what to do next. I'm not sure. I have no clue. I have no vector. I, I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm talented at, but there are no prospects for me. What is it that I do? And so instead of you taking a risk and talking and seeking after advice of others and seeking out community, you're just like, well, forget it. I don't know what my future is going to hold. So instead of me stepping out in boldness and me stepping out and seeking what I think God may be leading me to, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to remain comfortable where I'm at. Comfortability is the death of individuals, in my opinion. God has not wired us to be mediocre. God has wired us to pursue after holiness for bringing great glory to himself, not us. So stop thinking about your future and start asking God, what is it that you want for me to do for your glory? What is my future and what does that look like in relation to you? Number four, well, you may be too scared of important others losing interest. These are prominent figures in your life, people that may be mentors, good friends of yours who may think less of you if you come to them and say, hey, I need your help through this. I don't know which job to take. These are my options. Or I don't know which person to date. These are my options. Or I, I've been dealing with this sin. I don't know what to do anymore in my, wit, my wit's end, but I don't want other people to know because they may lose interest of me. They may think less of me. Can not all of us resonate with that? Like what is other people's perception of me going to be like? You know what I mean? And then number five, Upsetting important others. Actually, I think I did those out of whack. For important others losing interest and then upsetting important others. I don't want these individuals to distance themselves from me, nor do I want to upset them. 
This individual has been a mentor of mine. They've been discipling me for several weeks. And all of a sudden I go to them, hey man, I messed up. I messed up again. If that person that's discipling you smacks you over the head and says, I'm done with you. I want nothing left to do with you. That's an issue. That's probably not a person that is being filled with the Spirit to begin with. Now granted, does that, can that individual rebuke you? Absolutely, and they should. Like, stop doing that. Confess your sin. Put it away. Move on. Because the first thing I do when anyone comes to me and says, Ethan, I've been dealing with this and this, I say, have you confessed that to God yet? No. Then I don't want to talk to you until you've confessed that to God. You don't owe me anything. You owe God a confession. Because it's the Spirit living in you. You confess it to God, and then you need help. Then you come to me, or then you come to the community. But if you're wrestling with the sin and you haven't confessed it yet, you've got to get that in order first. If your past is still coming up and it's haunting you and you're having a problem dealing with that and moving past it, confess that, then come to others. Because we cannot let these fear of failure feelings control our life, control our mental state, control how it is that God is going to move us into the future and we're trying to limit what God's going to do in our life and we're not open to the possibilities of where God is going to move us. So what we need to look at too is that we cannot be controlled by failure because Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Do not allow fear to dictate your life. Do not allow the sins of the past still control you and your future. Your sins of your past do not control your future. What this person X or Y did to you back then does not dictate what is the outcome of your life. You are a new creation in Christ. If you've been physically assaulted or abused in your past as a child, God has freed you from that. That has no reign over your life anymore. If you've confessed, even though you've done nothing wrong, God, can, I am confessing that this has been controlling my mental state God will move you on from that. Or if you've done something to wrong someone in the past, you need to call and forgive them. You need to call and say, I am sorry for how I've wronged you. Move on and get out of that because God does not want us to be controlled by fear. Look at verse 15. We have to preach these truths to ourselves. Why? Verse 15 says this, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We must declare to ourselves and to other believers that we are set free from every kind of lawlessness. That's Titus 2.14. We need to declare this, own this, memorize this, and meditate on this passage. What things are we to declare? We are supposed to declare what Paul has written previously in Titus. That our future hope is in the Lord. We are not supposed to pursue after worldly passions or ungodliness. Stop living a life focusing on the past. Stop looking at a life focusing on the distant or the near past. A few hours ago, a few minutes ago. Stop focusing on that and start focusing on how is God going to use me in the future and what am I doing right now for God to use me in a great and mighty way. If you're a Christian, we cannot, nor should we continue to dwell and think on our past sins. You know, the amount of sins that I had done in that period of time in which I I realized that I wasn't a Christian, but I also kind of lied to myself from that time to, you know, the age of 18. I mean, I mean, you can pretty much roll the dice and you're going to be right at what I probably did. And as I was, you know, as I look at that and when Christ saved me, immediately I was confronted with my friend group reminding me of all the stuff that I used to do. Ethan, come on, dude, we're going down to the bars. You know, you, you can drink us just about as anyone else can. Guys, I don't do that anymore. Oh, come on, dude, dude, it was like a week ago you're out with us. 
That's not me, man. Yeah, right, sure, that's not you. No, I'm telling you, that's not me anymore. And that's the hardest thing is when you're being confronted with people who knew who you used to be and you're still in that same friend group and they're reminding you of who you used to be and you're trying to tell them, that's not me. I promise you, that is not me anymore. You can say what you want to say, but your actions are going to speak louder than anything else that you do. If I say, well, no, okay, but I'll go to the bars with you and this happened to me. Okay, fine, I'll be your DD. Go down, I was the DD. They throw me a beer. One, I should have never put myself in that situation to begin with. One leads to two, leads to three, leads to four. And I'm like, the next day I was like, why did I do that? I, why did I even subject myself to that temptation again? Why did I even put myself in this situation when I knew that this is still fresh? I need to invest time away from this, invest time in God's word and allow God to purge this sin out of me and not allow these individuals to smack me in the face and then point me back to my sin that I used to do. Break those barriers down, move on to the blessed hope, to the coming of Christ. Christian, I want you to know that those past sins do not define who you are. The spirit living inside of you, your salvation defines who you are. Through the grace that God has extended to us, through the grace that God has made appear to us. The past gives us a backdrop. We can learn from our past. This gives us a backdrop of what we've been saved from. This helps us look back and see, wow, look how God has worked in my life. But I should not be defined by that past, nor should I look back longing for the past. You're done with that. That is gone. We have to and we must remain focused on Christ, living on His Word and declaring these things to others. Let's pray.